Chapter Eight, Part Two of *The Man with the Black Cord* by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Midnight in the greenhouse continued. The detective stood by the gate, peering out in all directions. But the night was absolutely dark, and the blackness was impenetrable beyond the ray of his lantern. He closed the door with the key which he found on the outside, and then put it in his pocket. On his way back to the house he found the object that had hit him on the head. It was a little lantern of unusually fine and costly workmanship. He took this in, too. Both the front doors had been unlocked from the outside. The keys were still in the locks. Mueller closed them and put both keys with the others in his pocket. Then he let the light of his own lantern move over every foot of the floor of the corridor. He saw several new footprints there, the wet earth still clinging to some of them. He recognized his own footprints, and beside them were enormous tracks that he had not seen there before. Mueller drew a deep breath. His eyes shone with the gleam that came into them when he was on the trail. But he did not stay in the hall. He went back into the study, locked it carefully, and from there passed on into the bedroom. The first thing he did here was to fasten a tablecloth up over one window and a bedspread over the other. He was not at all anxious that anybody from outside should see him through a possible crack in the shutters, for he knew that his life wasn't worth much after what had happened, and then, besides, he wished to be left to work undisturbed. He took his seat on a comfortable armchair near the door that led to the corridor, and pulled a little flask from his pocket. After a hearty drink, he rubbed a lump that was growing on his head, and then lit a cigar. Then, finally, he disposed himself to meditate over this unexpected night visitor. "'Who could it have been?' he said. Could it have been the same person who underscored those three words in the book in the next room there? Those words, he was here, had not seemed to mean anything to the local authorities, and Mueller himself had been unable to find no fitting explanation for them until he heard the story of the man with the black cord. Even then it meant no clue which led to anything. Who had underscored these words? Erlock himself, when he saw his life threatened? Or his murderer? But why should Erlock do such a thing? The incident had no sense to it unless it had been written by the other, for this other might have intended this to notify the authorities, who were so unable to cope with him, that he was the terrible unknown who kept them all in fear and terror for years, that he had been in this room and had given them another uncanny riddle to solve. Who was it who was here a few moments back? Mueller asked himself again and again. It was not Leopold Erlock, of that he was certain. Leopold Erlock was small and slight, and this man was of unusual size. A man may increase his height and his breadth by a disguise, but he cannot change the length of his stride. No man under middle height could take the steps left as a clear trail by the fleeing unknown, and no old man could move with such haste. It had not been Leopold Erlock, even if the latter were still alive. Of course, it may have been an ordinary thief who managed to get the three keys and thought this a good chance to plunder an empty house, said the detective to himself, but this idea didn't seem right to him. He was glad he had forgotten to bar the garden door through which he entered himself, for if this had been done, the unknown would have realized that there was someone in the house and would not have come. The man, whoever it was, seemed to know the locality and went directly to the bedroom. What could he want in this room? He must know that all valuables, as well as the contents of the safe, had been removed to the police courts. Was there some clue, some trace of his presence that he may have remembered leaving, and that he wanted to take away? 
The detective asked himself all these questions while his eyes wandered slowly over every inch of the room. He knew that the bedchamber had been thoroughly examined by the local police several times. Every inch of the wall and floor had been sounded, the larger pictures and the mirror had been taken from the walls in search of a possible secret door. The bed had been dragged out from the wall, but had not otherwise been disturbed. It was impossible that Erlock could be concealed in the bed anywhere, for although the wooden part of the structure was very old, the spring and mattress were new and modern. On Mueller's first visit to the house he had also examined the room very carefully, but he had not seen anything beyond what the others had found. He knew now, however, that there was something more to be seen, something which he must find, something which brought this nightly visitor to the door. Suddenly the veteran detective rose with a start, while a crimson wave of blood shot up over his face to the very roots of his hair. One of his sudden intuitive flashes had illumined his brain. He had realized that all the colors in this room were dark. From the browns of the inlaid floor up to the paler ceiling, everything was dark. The furniture was of ebony, and the picture frames heavily carved of the same wood. The wallpaper was of a dark shade which had grown deeper with years. The light ceiling and the white coverings of the bed were all that brought brightness into the room. Mueller's eyes now rested on the old-fashioned woodwork of the bed structure, its richly carved high head and footboards. On top of the headboard, two little angels, carved out of the black wood, leaned forward as if to look down on the one who should sleep there. With their little fat fingers they held fast to a rococo railing which formed a border for the heavier carving of the solid wood below. It was this railing and its many corners and curves that now attracted Mueller's eyes. A faint memory of something seen before, but only half noticed, came back to his mind. It seemed to him that when he first saw this bed he had casually noticed that the lines of the pretty composition at its top were not quite clear. It was this memory that now sent a searchlight flash through his brain. He stood with the light of his lantern thrown full on the carving, and his tightly closed lips parted in a smile. His free hand carefully disengaged the black cord which was twisted about the black carving, the cord left there by an incredibly audacious criminal. Then Mueller examined his latest discovery. The cord was about ten inches long, evidently a bit cut off of a larger piece. The strands were loosening on either end. The cord was made of braided horsehair and was about as heavy as a large steel knitting needle. "'That's what he was after,' said Mueller aloud, and then he wondered mildly whether the man who escaped was not likely to be waiting outside on the moor until he himself should come out. If he were, there would probably be heard the sound of a shot through the night, or, safer still, the quick thrust of a knife, and the man with the black cord would no longer have to fear the only foe who was as brave and as clever as he was himself. But Mueller, who though fearless, was not reckless, decided that there was no necessity of running into such an avoidable danger when he could easily pass the rest of the night in the greenhouse. He looked at his watch and found it to be just twelve o'clock. Having nothing else to do, the detective turned to another examination of the bed. The first time he had seen it, on the 20th of September, he was already convinced that that bed had not been slept in on the night of the ninth, but he knew that someone had laid down on it for a few moments, laid down in his clothes and his shoes. He discovered this through the magnifying glass with which he had thoroughly examined the sheets and the coverings. The glass showed him infinitesimal bits of earth on the white surface, and these soiled spots were very near the front of the bed, at the place where the coverlet had been found thrown back. 
Mueller was sure that somebody had lain on that bed with his knees drawn up, and that the soles of his boots had come into contact with the clean sheet. Whoever it was had been careful to brush away all the stains, except the few microscopic bits which no one had noticed. The top pillow still held the pressure of a head, and the sheets showed the folds into which they were thrown by the body resting there. But at the lower end of the bed there was not a single fold to be seen. Whoever had lain there had not stretched himself out comfortably as a man naturally would when sleeping in his accustomed bed. Why had the unknown criminal desired to give the bed the appearance of having been slept in? For no other reason possibly than simply to give an added touch of mystery to the affair. And all of the clothes which Erlock had worn through the day of the ninth of September were missing. Mueller knew by this time that the old man had not yet gone to bed when he was attacked. This corresponded with Carl Tunner's report that he had seen a light in Erlock's room when he had entered the garden. The lamp hung above the desk in the study, and the study shutters were not closed, so that the light could easily be seen from outside. While pondering all this, Mueller made himself comfortable in the corner of a big sofa, settling down for the rest of the night. But he had not sat there long before he raised his head again and listened. Again he heard someone moving, outside the house this time. He stood up, closed his lantern, took his revolver, and moved softly out into the corridor. When he reached the front door, he looked out through the glass, and could dimly see the figure of a man waiting there. The man moved, pressed the knob of the outer iron gate, and shook it. Finding this of no avail, he put his arm through the bars and knocked on the glass pane. Then Mueller knew who it was, and turned the light of his lantern full on the face outside as he opened the door. "'What are you doing here?' he asked in surprise, as Carl Tunner slipped hastily through the opening. "'Thank goodness you're all right.' murmured Carl, wiping his face. I thought sure he'd shot you. Who had? The man I met as I ran up here. Where did you meet him? About one hundred paces outside the gate, at the end of the avenue. He suddenly jumped out from behind a tree and ran off over the moor. Did you call after him? Yes. Stop, you rascal, I cried. You see, I heard the shots and saw him running away. Did you climb over the wall again? asked Mueller, when they were back in the bedroom, and he was gathering up the trophies of his evening's work. Carl nodded an affirmative. You didn't call my name, did you? Oh, no. Well, we can go now. Even if he should come back, he won't dare to attack two of us. Mueller locked the front doors carefully, thinking that the unknown would not be able to get into the house again, as it was scarcely possible he would have duplicate keys. Then the detective opened his lantern and let it move over the ground in front of the door and up the path. There were a number of tracks to be seen in the soft earth. Mueller recognized his own footprints and Carl's, and beside them, the traces of an enormous foot at astonishingly wide intervals. He stooped to examine one of them. It was a very odd track, having none of the usual outlines of a boot sole. It was just one big, even oblong, rounded off a little at either end. "'He's wearing overshoes,' said the detective. "'Not rubber soles, either, for these have very characteristic soles and can be recognized at once. This man is much too clever for that. He chooses felt slippers or something of that sort.' It's a very good idea, an excellent idea, one reason the less to fear discovery. Mueller straightened up and put out his light even before they came to the corner of the house. Now watch out well, he said in a whisper to Carl, and stay close beside me. Take this leaded cane, and if we should be attacked, and you can get at him, try to hit his legs. But don't make a mistake and hit mine instead. Then they went forward through the blackness. But the eye grows accustomed even to such darkness, and when Mueller had locked the garden gate behind him, he could already distinguish the outlines of tall old trees. 
Once outside, the two men set out on a strange wandering about the moor, going now to the right, now to the left, then back again, stopping now to listen, creeping forward again. Finally, after numerous twistings and turnings and zigzaggings, they came back to the little gate that led them into the garden of their present home. Before Carl opened this gate, they both listened and looked in all directions. Then, when they were quite certain that there was no one within sight or hearing, they slipped quickly through and into the pavilion. They went to bed in the darkness, for if anyone outside on the moors should have been following or watching their wandering, it would not be wise to let him see light at that hour in the little house inhabited by Mr. Hartman and his valet. Mueller lay awake for some time, going over all the impressions he had received during this eventful night. Of one thing he was certain, a certainty which thrilled him with pleasurable excitement. He knew now that the person concerned in the Erlock mystery was the same clever, cynical, reckless rascal who had kept the entire neighborhood in terror for the last three years. And Mueller was certain of something else, too. The unknown was not one of the factory workers. The peculiar style and evident costliness of the little lantern that had come into his possession in so unpleasant a manner was a proof that the man who had thrown it at him did not belong to the working class. And as the unknown, fleeing before him, had opened the front door of the house, the light of Mueller's lantern fell on his hand. All the detective could see was that the hand was covered by a glove of soft reddish-brown leather. He could get no correct impression as to the size or structure of the hand itself. Anyway, it's not the custom among factory workers to wear kid gloves. In fact, it's not a usual thing for criminals accustomed to such nightly excursions to wear gloves anyway, said Mueller to himself. Then suddenly he sat up in bed. Although he was already growing old, the veteran detective was young in heart and spirit, and he never lost acuteness of the shock when one of his flashing thoughts came to him. This was one. Does this superintelligent, this quite extraordinarily clever villain, always wear gloves when he is doing something, whereby the impression of the skin of his fingers might leave a fatal clue? He must be familiar with criminal proceedings, and know how important that point is. But in spite of his sleepless night, Mueller was up early the next morning. Carl was awake still earlier, and stood ready with the heavy wadded vest and coat which gave his slender employer Mr. Hartman's comfortable aboipois. When Mueller had finished dressing, he said to Carl, "'You know what you are to do today?' Tunner bowed. "'Yes, Mr. Mueller.' "'Mr. Mueller?' repeated the detective sharply. "'Mr. Hartman, sir,' the young man answered with a smile. Mueller's glance was still sharp. "'My dear young man, it is no laughing matter that we are engaged on here. You may have noticed that last night, when you proved yourself worthy of my confidence. Both you and I must be very careful in everything we say and do, for we are here on very serious business.' and it would be well for you to look a little more seriously at life if you ever want to make anything worthwhile of your existence. And now, once more, do you know what you are to do? Yes, sir, said Carl, now quite grave. I am to clean off all traces of the nightly expedition, to lock up the clothes you wore last night, and then to look about the neighborhood and talk with people about the occurrences in the greenhouse. I am to take dinner at the inn in Inzersdorf, and need not return here, today at least, until about four o'clock. Good. And one more thing. I am not so much interested, not as much as I was yesterday, in very large men or in men of the working class. I thought so, said Carl quickly. Mueller looked up quickly. Why did you think that? Because the man who shot at you yesterday... Mueller started to interrupt, then concluded that he wouldn't. Carl needn't know everything. Is not an ordinary working man. And why do you think that? From the way he spoke. You heard him speak? Yes. As he ran past me, I heard him say, not very loud, though, devilish adventure this. 
That was all I heard. And you didn't tell me that before now. I thought you were an intelligent man. Should I have told you right away? Yes, yes, of course. That's most important. You are to tell me everything you see or hear at once. You are to tell me if you hear a fly hum, and think it could be of any use to me in my work. Mueller's sentence ended in a smile, in which Carl joined. And one more thing, continued the detective. You are to take an interest in men's gloves of dark reddish-brown leather, and you must still watch men of over-middle height who wear long cloaks with hoods. Carl repeated every sentence until he was sure that he understood, and then in answer to Mueller's question, replied that he had quite enough money for the day's expedition. Very well, then. You need not be too careful of the money. But don't go ahead too fast. It may be necessary that you should invite the one or the other to have a glass with you. Most people talk more easily when drinking. And be careful to emphasize the fact that you know nothing more of me than that I am the landed proprietor Hartman from Poland, that I am here to study brickmaking, and that you entered my service in Vienna. Thank fortune, that's the truth, said Carl warmly. Mueller answered with a friendly smile. That's all right, he said cordially. Keep straight, and that will be enough to show your gratitude for the little I've done for you, and for your mother's great love. Mueller left the garden through the little door, and as he walked along his thoughts were still busy with the unknown. So he talks high German, does he? I was right then, he is no working man. A devilish adventure, you say, my friend? It may be that it will prove devilish for you. It was a lucky thing he had no idea who it was that was after him, for if he discovers me before I discover him, my life will hang on a thread, or on a black cord, rather. Mueller walked along with his eyes on the ground. Suddenly he stopped and bent to examine the moist earth. He was at the corner of the wall where the lane led into a wider street. The soft ground was covered with tracks of wagon wheels, horses' hooves, and human footprints. Among them was a trail of enormous feet of unusual shape. Mueller recognized them as the same footprints he had seen that night in the Erlock garden. So he followed us after all, murmured the detective, and the discovery did not contribute to his ease of mind. End of chapter 8, part 2